Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. If you don't know me, my name is Phil Schaefer. I get to the I get the privilege of being the worship pastor at this church. I get the privilege of preaching uh, more fr- more frequently now than ever before, which I love. Um, I'm super thankful for the people that were up here on the stage just a little bit ago that led us so well in worship into the presence of God um, so that I can just focus on preaching. There was actually a day or two many, many moons ago where I had to lead worship and then turn right around and preach, and uh, I'm thankful that those days are long gone. I'm still ready to do it if, if, if the worst possible scenario happens, but man, I, I'm certainly thankful for Ike and Jordan and Kaylin and Kelsey and Daryl uh, who were up there today, and there's many more of you that will serve next week and the week after and all that stuff. I'm super thankful for all you guys um, and girls on the team. You know, in 2024, we're going to start with Psalm 24. Um, how many of you were here on Thursday night? You know, a, either a hand or a whoop, <laughs> or a Midwestern ope, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, it was, if you weren't here, um, that was actually our first service of the year. Uh, we, we really kind of throw curveballs at the beginning of each year. We do a worship night and baptisms on the first Thursday night of the year. We've done this for a couple years in a row now, and, and Thursday night was amazing. We, we heard a little bit from Chris and Heather about where we've been and where we're going with Psalm 24 in 2024. And we had baptisms. Some of them were planned. Some of them were spontaneous. There was physical healing that took place in this building. And one of the, and so all of that stuff, right, we were, we talked about it pretty extensively in 2023. By the way, do you like my preaching socks? Thank you. I got, yes. Um, All sorts of new things we're trying in 2024. I'm super comfy today. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, we, we talked about this extensively all throughout 2023 with it being a Psalm 23 season, and then we capped it off with six months of revelation, which is quite the capstone, um, an unprecedented thing for our church. And probably I would say most of the global church, um, doing something that intimidating and that comprehensive and then we realized at the end of it because we're still new at this even though we're like nine years in is that we didn't leave ourselves enough years to do revelation properly Um, but what we saw what we were trying to grasp all last year was this i honestly this idea of breakthrough and revival and glory and healing and all of these things and then when you get to the end of the year because of the way that we're programmed as humans, it's like, okay, well, that's done and over with. We finished Revelation with the last weekend of the year, and so we're done with Psalm 23, and we're done with Revelation, and we're on to something else, and that's not really what we're doing. That's not what the Lord has for us. It was very clear early on in 2023, actually. We don't have time to go into the whole story. Maybe we'll bear that out over the course of this year, but that we were not leaving a Psalm 23 season, we're just adding Psalm 24. We're going to continue to stand on the promises of Psalm 23, and, we're, and we built this very, very thick layer of Psalm 23 into a foundation, and now it's time to build a very, very thick layer of Psalm 24 into our foundation too. And so before I go any further, can we just, can we just um, 
Can we just stand up? Let's get some blood flowing a little bit. And I want to read, I want to read Psalm 24. Um, everybody, like everyone in the world, whether you're a Christian or not, knows Psalm 23 just about. Um, aside from maybe John 3.16, it's like one of the most popular Bible verses ever, or chapters, really. Um, and you might think that, well, okay, that was cute, you know, Psalm 23, 2023, and now you're just doubling down on cute and going with Psalm 24 and 2024, or just copying and pasting. And if, and, if, and if you're in here today, and, and that cynical side of you is coming through, like, first off, I want to say I love you. You're welcome here. And just please stick with us for just a second, because it's not cute. It's not just copy and paste, Okay. This chapter is 24 is right after chapter 23 for a reason. Okay, let's read this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Yes, very, uh, love that. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Then verse 7, it gets really, really good. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. That's why we sang the song to start the service. That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, you can sit down. That is awesome. And I would say it's just as awesome, if not more awesome, than Psalm 23. And they're intricately connected. You're going to see this. So we're not leaving Psalm 23. We're adding Psalm 24. You're going to see this play out in the teaching all year. You're going to see this play out in the songs we sing all year. You're going to see this play out in the conversations that we have hopefully during the mingle and other times, all year. What is the last verse of Psalm 23? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ooh, yeah, I received that, right? We received that. Well, doesn't that sound a lot like Revelation? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, sort of looking forward to our eternal destiny. Okay, well, what's the first two verses of Psalm 24? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, where he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Isn't that like, like creation? Isn't that kind of like creation? Well, so we ended the Psalm 23 season in Revelation, and what did we learn at the end of Revelation? We actually go back to Eden, right? So at the end of 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where is the house of the Lord? Eden. Back to the beginning. So, for those of you that weren't here on Thursday night, this is what's happening in all of 2024. I'm going to spoil the whole thing already. We got five weeks in Psalm 24. This week, I'm going to kind of do an overview, and, I'm going to, and then I'm going to do a deep dive, really deep dive, on verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to do 3 through 6, and then 7 through 10, 
and then 7 through 10 again, because we need to do 7 through 10 twice, because you'll forget it if we don't, among other things. Actually, there's just a lot there. And then week five is kind of like an anchor week, transition week. So five weeks on these 10 verses. We're learned our lesson. We're taking our time here. And then the rest of the year is the book of Genesis. The whole year. All 50 chapters. Whole year. So lots of First Testament preaching coming your way in 2024. And, and, and one of the things that was so cool about Revelation right, is that basically every line is referencing the First Testament. But John did not quote it word for word, ever. Now, he wasn't trying to, like, be cute or hide things in code. He assumed that his readers knew the First Testament so well that they would catch on. He didn't think he had to quote it word for word. So, we must avoid any negative perception of the First Testament. Anything at all. I mean something as subtle as, I mean, thank, you, thank the Lord that we got the New Testament, right? Like, good thing we got Jesus in the end. And yeah, amen to that. But listen, if you're not drowning in the First Testament, you don't have a prayer of understanding the second. Not a prayer. The First Testament was the Bible Jesus had. It was good enough for him. It was, the, it was the Bible that the early church had before the letters were written and the Gospels were written and Revelation was written, right? It was good enough for them. Now, listen, we need the Second Testament too, okay? Yeah, I'm not trying to bash it. What I'm saying is that every single word in Matthew through Revelation is a reinforcement of Genesis through Malachi. Reinforcement of. And if you're, if you're new here or if you're, new, if you're listening on the podcast and you're like, why, do they, why have they started to say this first, second, first and second testament thing instead of old versus new? Like, why, why would you do that? That's heresy, right? Well, fine. Email us. We can talk about it. Here's why we're doing that. There really isn't any new ideas, per se, in the New Testament. There's nothing new about it, which means there's nothing old about the Old Testament. I think they're bad titles, to be really honest. Okay? That's, that's it. It's, it's a re, the first, the, the Second Testament, Matthew, through Revelation, is a reinforcement of everything, every idea in Genesis through Malachi. And I can't fully prove that out to you today. That would take, honestly, a very long time, but... I've got a deal for you. If you stick with us for the next several decades, <laughs> we will prove it out for you as we journey through the First Testament. So, taking applications now for the long, for the long haul. Right now, Psalm 24. I'm getting off track a little bit. Psalm 24. We said this a bunch in Revelation, did we not? That was loud. Um. As we step through these verses, we need to be careful to understand what's the genre we're reading. What's the historical and cultural context? Who's the audience? Is there anything going on in the spiritual realm? I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot going on in the spiritual realm in this text. Okay? These are examples of what? Good questions to ask of the text. We don't 
tell the text what to say, we ask good questions of it. Okay? So, let's talk about the audience and the historical and cultural context. Psalm 24 was, it says it's a Psalm of David here. Um, if in some Bibles it, it would say that as, as like the subtitle, right? So this would have been used by ancient Israelites as part of their worship practices or rituals at the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple complex. Okay? So we need to read this through the eyes of an ancient Israelite, not through the eyes of a modern American. Okay? If you read it as a modern American, you will get lots of good stuff and you will miss most of the really good stuff. Like the best stuff, you will miss all of the best stuff. Okay, so we have to read it as an ancient Israelite, an ancient Hebrew. And that's really hard to do because none of us are ancient Hebrews. We're modern Americans. So this takes a lot of practice. Um, it it's, does not come natural to anyone. I've been trying to do this for the last several years, and I've gotten much better at it than I was when I started, but it's still, it's still a work in progress. And so, again, if you stick with us for the next few decades, we're going to help you get another set of lenses that you can put on from time to time and, 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 and wrestle with these passages, okay? Now, the genre is really important. Psalms, that's kind of easy, right? That's a song, it's a song, it's poetry, um, but it's not just a song in poetry. We talked extensively about genre in Revelation, like apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature and symbolism and how important that stuff was. Well, honestly, psalms are, can be very similar. Very similar. There's going to be metaphor. Like a, Think about a song. There's going to be metaphor. There's going to be imagery. There's going to be symbolism. And it's going to be beautiful, right? It might, there's going to be a cadence to it. There might be some rhyming to it, right? It's going to feel good. But underneath that imagery is some theological concept that's being brought forward for discussion. It's not just a worship song, okay? We don't sing the songs that we sing because they're any good. Now, I think they're all very good, just... They're, it's good music, feels good, sounds good. But we don't sing the songs just because it's good music or because it's fun. And it is those things. We sing those songs because there's a deeper theological concept being brought forward that I need to wrestle with. It's supposed to change how I think about God or how I think about myself as it relates, as I relate to God, right? That's what a psalm is for. Now, when you talk about psalms in general, there are many different types of psalms, many different purposes for writing a psalm. Okay, you have enthronement psalms, right, talking about the Most High seated on the throne. You have thanksgiving psalms. You have praise psalms, wisdom psalms, historical psalms, talking about, like, say, a past victory in battle. You have corporate lament or individual lament, Psalm 51, when David was caught in his adultery with Bathsheba, created me a clean heart. That was individual lament. Okay? You have temple entry, many different types, and many psalms are a combination of these types. And Psalm 24 is no exception. It is a temple entry psalm and an enthronement psalm. 
Okay, and, and we can just kind of break the passage into chunks and we'll kind of see that. So verses 1 and 2, it's talking about Yahweh's dominion over creation. That's sort of enthronement, most high, right? And then verses 3 through 6 talk about the external and internal purity requirements for someone that wants to enter into Yahweh's presence. That's temple entry for the worshiper. Then 7 through 10 is temple entry for Yahweh himself. It's Yahweh entering the city of Jerusalem or the temple complex itself as a victorious warrior king. Now let's talk, so enthronement's obvious. We spent so much time on the throne, right, uh, in, in Revelation, so I don't want to dwell too much on that, but I want to, temple, the temple entry thing, we need to dive in on that a little bit because that's, that's what God has for us today. Many ancient religions, basically all of them had these types of songs or psalms or dialogues, temple entry, right? We've talked about idols before, how these statues, no one, none of these ancient people were stupid enough to believe that that statue of gold or stone or wood was actually a god, okay? They did not believe that the structure did anything. They would do whatever rituals they would do to get the spirit that they believed in to come and inhabit the statue, to come be in their presence, okay? So they had, all these religions had temple entry style psalms, you might say. But the ancient Hebrews had one very important difference. Their temple entry psalm was for two purposes. It's for me, to prepare me to get into the presence of Yahweh, and to usher in Yahweh into our presence. Both. Okay? It was, these, this psalm functioned as an exchange, a dialogue between the priest and the worshiper. So you can try to imagine you're, you're walking up to the temple complex and a priest is standing there. And the priest... You're ready to go in and do whatever you're going to do. And the priest says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he's founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And then you say, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean, right? And you go back and forth. That's kind of cool, isn't it? They did that to remind themselves. Again, another key difference between all this and all the other religions. They did it to remind themselves that they weren't just showing up to do worship things. They weren't just there to sing songs. They weren't just there to sacrifice goats or give their money or pray. They were reminding each other. Even the priest who worked there, that was his job who was in Yahweh's presence all the time, it was still to remind the priest himself that he was not there just to be a priest and the worshiper was not there just to do the worshipy acts. They were there to be in the presence of their father. Because they're reminding themselves at the end of the psalm, the back half is that, no, no, Yahweh's showing up. Yahweh's showing up. 
So what does it mean for us? We don't just show up to a church building to sing songs with our friends and family and kids, and they go off to kids' church, and we have some coffee and talk, and there's preaching and all this stuff. Like we're showing up to be together as a family in the presence of our Father because that's all that he wants. He wants his family together. It's showing up to a place where the manifest presence of God dwells. Literally, the word tabernacle means dwelling place. So you can say God tabernacles with his people, dwells with his people. The temple entry psalm is to remind us of this reality. Now, the lest we forget Revelation, you're going to see, you should see by now, because we spent six months doing Revelation, these same Revelation-type themes oozing out of this passage as we step through it in the coming weeks. How about this? The righteous will be in God's presence in eternity. Amen to that. But the righteous are also welcome in God's presence right now. Amen to that. Psalm 24, right? Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yes, I'm looking forward to that new Eden, that heavenly eternity, but open up ancient gates. <laughs> like, we, yeah, we want to spend time with you right now. Most high seated on the throne, that one's obvious. What about subduing chaos? I promise you there's some subduing of chaos going on here. We talk about that extensively in Revelation, right? But there's a bunch of chaos being subdued in Psalm 24, too. What about doors imagery, right? The back half of the psalm is talking about doors opening up. Well, what about Revelation 4.1? Behold, and there stood a door open in heaven. What about the keys of death in Hades? Doors, right? So, with all of that in mind, let's dive really deep in what time we have left into verses 1 and 2. Okay, let's put verses 1 and 2 back up, please. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Okay, stop. Verse 1, fullness thereof, all that, some, some, some translations say, all that fills it. Okay, now, this is not the first time this type of language is used. Okay, there's several places where this language is used. Let's go to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. There's nothing like doing a sword drill in front of a bunch of people. It's okay. I went to a Christian school, and we did sword drills with like 300 people in a gymnasium. It's okay. I've been healed of it. (laughs) Exodus Exodus chapter 9, verse 29. This is the seventh plague of hail in Egypt, okay? This is also referenced in Revelation chapter 16. Okay, Moses says in verse 29, Moses said to Pharaoh, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. This was an insane statement for Moses to make. Why? Because he was standing in front of Pharaoh 
who was the embodiment of the chief god of the Egyptians. He believed himself to be a god. So the earth was his. And here is this old Israelite shepherd showing up, saying, now the earth is Yahweh's. And you might, and you, when you read through Exodus, you say, man, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Why? He believed he was a god. He believed the earth was his. The whole earth was his. He was probably the most powerful human being on the planet at that time. That's how powerful the Egyptians were. On top of that, all of Yahweh's people are his slaves. So how powerful is Yahweh in his eyes? Not very. So insane thing to say for an old Hebrew shepherd to tell the God of the universe that the earth is not his, it's somebody else's, especially a God that he seems to have subdued for the moment. Very important concept. Paul quotes Psalm 24, verse 1, and 1 Corinthians 10, 26, where he's talking about eating meat. He's, it's kind of that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful passage. And Paul's basically saying, hey, listen, God made all of this meat. You should eat it. It's good. Right? Just make sure you don't eat food, knowingly eat food sacrificed to idols. We talked extensively about that. But eat all the meat. Just not sacrificed. There you go. Yes. And then Job 41.11, this is such a mic drop with, for God right here. So in, in Job 38, through the, end of the chat, through the end of the book, it's basically like yeah, uh, Job and his friends are kind of going back and forth and complaining. And then in chapter 38, Yahweh shows up in a whirlwind and he's like, dress for action like a man. You're going to answer some questions now. You're enough of your complaining, right? Well, in chapter 41, so God just goes on this big, long speech for multiple chapters, and Job's like, ooh, right? Job 41.11, listen to what God says here. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Is there anybody, Job, that you can think of? that has given anything to me that I need to pay him back? Is there anybody that you can think of, Job, that I owe anything at all to? And the answer to that question is no. So the theological concept that we're supposed to get out of verse 1 is Yahweh is the Most High, seated on the throne, and he does not owe you anything. In fact, you owe him everything. That is verse 1. Verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Very clear reference to creation in Genesis. But more specifically, it is a statement of Yahweh's ability to subdue chaos. Can I have a Kleenex, please? I'm so sorry. <laughs> getting so emotional up here. No. I need, I need to. Sorry. I'll just keep them up here. I want to mute this for a little bit. There we go. Okay. Sorry. Um, so more specifically, it's a statement about Yahweh's ability to subdue chaos. And we get that from that seas and rivers language there. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We talked about this 
all the time in Revelation, right? The beast came out of the sea. The sea was chaos, right? This chaos imagery. So verse 2 is, is a specific statement about Yahweh's ability to subdue chaos. Now, let's put my fancy picture up there for like the third time I think I've used this picture. Yes. So I used this in Revelation, and I talked about like the top half, the firmament, and Yahweh's throne being above that. And the firmament was actually uh, the sea of glass in Revelation. Okay, this time I want to talk about the bottom half. Okay. So this is the ancient Hebrew concept of the universe. In fact, all the ancient Near Eastern peoples believed this. The whole universe was in this dome. And when it says that the, the world was founded on the seas and established on the rivers, they all believed that the earth was flat. So the, the pieces of land were set on top of the seas. Okay? Now, you have to try to think about this from an ancient person's perspective because we know that scientifically this is not true. Okay? They're, they're just trying to make sense of the world that they see. Okay? So all these pieces of land are floating on top of the ocean, but the, the ground isn't moving beneath my feet. I'm on a firm foundation, you might say. Well, how is that possible? If you put land on top of the ocean, it's just going to float all over the place. Well, so there were these pillars that went down into the, the foundations of the earth, the great deep, the, the, all the way to the underworld. This is Sheol. This is the realm of the dead. Okay? So you have these pieces of land on top of the ocean. Then you have these pillars that sank down all the way to the, I guess you could call it almost the bottomless pit, but the, the realm of the dead, these foundations of the earth. You have these pillars here. Okay? That's what they believed. And in fact, all of this information is in the Bible, even the pillars part. And you might be saying, really? Where's that? I'll show you. Second, or 1 Samuel 2.8. There's a bunch of these references today, uh, but this is the most on-the-nose one. I'm going to lead with this one. 1 Samuel 2.8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. There it is. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Is that not very similar to Psalm 24 language? Not only is the land, the pillars, the part that goes down to the scary place, the realm of the dead, that even, even the pillars are the Lord's. You know who, and this wasn't just the high priest saying this. It wasn't just the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the, the, like the, the really smart PhD guys. They, did, they weren't the only ones that had this information. You know who was saying this? This is Hannah. As part of her song of praise as she's dedicating Samuel to serving the Lord, even a common woman knew this, believed this. This was common knowledge. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So that's, that's what verse 2 is really getting at. And then later on in verses 7 through 10, you get this victorious king imagery, warrior king imagery. Why? Well, it's precisely because of Yahweh's victory over chaos at creation in Genesis. And you might be saying, that seems like a bit of a stretch. 
why would we talk about victory over chaos and victory in battle in reference to creation? If I read Genesis, it just says God spoke, right? There's no battles taking place. Why would Psalm 24 talk about it like there's a battle going on? I'm glad you asked. Let's, let's take a closer look. There's actually several layers to this, but today I'm going to focus on just one because we've got two, two more weeks of verses 7 through 10 coming, and there's a lot of thunder to go around. I don't want to steal any, okay? I want to do a deep dive in two words, seas and rivers. Okay, let's put that up there. So the Hebrew word for seas is yamim. The root word of that is yam, okay? And then the, the Hebrew word for rivers is neharot. The root word is nahar, okay? So yam and nahar, sea, river, okay? So let's, let, let's, let's read verse 2 again, but with the Hebrew in there. For he has founded it upon yam and established it upon nahar. You might say, so what? I would say that Yam and Nahar are two names for the God of chaos in Canaanite religion. And the ancient Hebrews knew this. The writer of Psalm 24 knew this. He did not choose those words lightly. He could have depicted Yahweh creating the earth in any number of ways. He could have talked about the sun and the moon and the stars. He could have talked about the animals he could, and the trees and the plants. And the, he could have done it any number of ways. And he specifically said Yam and Nahar because he knew those were names for the god of chaos in the Canaanite religion. Remember, this, this is Baal and Asherah. These are the chief antagonists of Yahweh in the First Testament. And we've actually discovered through archaeology, thankfully, large chunks of the Canaanite Bible, quote-unquote Bible. It's called the Baal Cycle. And near the beginning of the Baal Cycle, you have the god Yom depicted as the Most High God, the King of the Gods. So in the beginning of Canaanite understanding of history, in the beginning, chaos is ruling. Yom is ruling. And all the other gods in the Canaanite divine council, are subject to him, including Baal. And after a while, Baal is like, nah, I'm done with this. I'm going to be in charge now. So he starts to secretly recruit all the other gods to join him behind the scenes, and they're going to like have a rebellion, and they're going to take over, and Baal's going to be the most high god. But Yom finds out about this. And he gets pretty upset. And I'm actually going to read a short passage from the Baal cycle. Okay? Now, don't freak out. This is not the inspired word of God. It's not in the... Okay, this is a pagan text. But it's, it's old, and it was written along the same, around the same time that a lot of these words were written. Actually, before. And it's helpful. Okay? There's no need to be scared of it. So, here's a segment from the Baal cycle. Message of Yom, your master, of your Lord, Nahar. There it is, Yom and Nahar. Give up the God whom you obey. Give up Baal and his retinue, the son of Dagon. Do you remember Dagon? The God of the Philistines. The statue fell over when the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple. That's another story for another day. 
whose gold I shall seize. The divine assistants depart. They do not delay. They set their faces toward the divine mountain, toward the convocation of the council with a capital C. Do you remember when we talked about how when Elijah and the prophets of Baal had a showdown on Mount Carmel that Elijah chose that place because Mount Carmel was the sacred mountain where Baal lived? They set their faces toward the divine mountain towards the convocation of the council. We talk about the divine council often, and Yahweh has a divine council too. This isn't just, an, this isn't just some idea. This is, an, this is an idea that every religion has, a pantheon of gods, right? The difference is in Yahweh's version of the divine council, he's the most high God, and he actually acts like it. And we, as we've learned in Revelation, our destiny is to join that divine council and be co-rulers with Jesus in the eternity. That's another key difference in the stories. Okay? So eventually, the story goes on, and Baal and Yom, eventually it leads to a showdown, and, and Baal actually kills Yom in battle and becomes the Most High God. And this is all part of the Canaanite story of creation. Baal kills chaos, and now the world can be created. Well, Psalm 24 and Genesis 1 and 2 where we're going, they are directly referencing these ideas. Directly. Yam and Nahar, right? But the story changes because we see no mention of a battle with gods of chaos, do we? Now, I believe the gods, God, there is a god of chaos or gods of chaos. I believe they're real. Satan, you could call a god of chaos for sure. The sons of God, right? Some of the sons of God rebelled against Yahweh. Some of them definitely rebelled or could have rebelled before creation of the world. And so in that sense, before the creation of the world, you could have had God or gods of chaos, right? That were rebelling against Yahweh. Okay. So these, but these were created beings that chose to rebel. They weren't on equal footing. Okay, And the reason why Genesis 1 doesn't talk about a battle is because there wasn't one. Yahweh doesn't have to fight anyone or anything to create anything. He spoke a word and there was light. He spoke a word and separated the land from, from the sea and the sky and created all of the living things. He spoke a word and subdued chaos. You know, some ancient Near Eastern religions actually depict their chief god locked in an eternal battle with the gods of chaos. So from the time of creation into eternity, their chief god is constantly battling the gods of chaos to keep the universe from ripping apart. And their sacrificial systems are even set up in such a way to impart ensure that their chief God can continue to overcome the gods of chaos and keep the universe from splitting apart. You know, so long as the sacrifices from you keep coming in, as long as the tithe keeps coming in, as long as your believing loyalty endures, then Baal's going to keep the universe from splitting apart. But if you stop, then he gets weaker and all of a sudden it all, and then that's how these other religions work. That's not how our faith works. So the theological concept being brought forward in verse 2 is that Yahweh is different. 
He subdued chaos on our behalf for his glory. There was no battle. He's different because he doesn't require our sacrifices and believing loyalty to keep the universe intact. He's infinitely more powerful than these other gods that he created. And the Hebrews wanted to make sure that it was very clear that while their worldview was similar in construction to everyone around them, their Most High actually looked and sounded and acted like a Most High. Because if you actually say you're the Most High, you shouldn't have to battle anyone. You should be able to speak a word and create light and land and sea. You shouldn't have to defeat gods of chaos that you yourself created who are infinitely less powerful than you. So it's really weird to assume the title of Most High when you can't really act like a Most High. And this is actually, going, going back to the Baal cycle and some of these other things, um, this is actually one of the primary arguments that skeptics use to try to attack the validity of the Bible. They'll say, well, you know, the flood story was just a copy from an older story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the Baal cycle is way older than Genesis before it was written down. And, and, and Christians were just like, oh, you have a PhD and you said this really smart-sounding thing. What should I do? And he, <laughs> be nice, okay? <laughs> be, be loving, but he, try this response. Something like this. I've never been in this conversation before, so... I can't ensure its quality, but just because something was written first doesn't mean it's right. Because that's the argument they're making. Well, the Baal cycle is older. The Hebrews just copied it. Okay, and? I mean, they did change some very important aspects of the story, like the only parts of the story that matter, they changed that. But who says that just because it was written down first means it's right? Who says first is best? You would never accept that style of argument for any other situation. But somehow that argument is like worth its weight in gold when it comes to textual criticism of this book. Don't accept it. Say, no, thank you. Try again. You'll have to do something better than that. Okay? There was no battle. He doesn't need us to win or to keep winning. He's already won. He never lost anything, right? Not, not a single molecule <laughs> in the universe has ever gotten out of place, ever, at any point in history. That's how under control the chaos is, okay? When it talks about Yahweh's throne in front of a sea of glass, that's what we're trying to get at. The chaos is so subdued, you can't tell that the water is moving, In fact, the chaos is so under control. Yahweh has so much extra bandwidth. Okay? He's got the whole universe. He's, he can deal with black holes and quasars and pulsars and comets and asteroids and all that stuff. He's got that so under control. He's got enough bandwidth to have a relationship with you. And you. And you. He knows that you had a tough childhood. He knows 
about that physical ailment that just doesn't seem to get any better? That's how in control it is. That's how subdued the chaos is. He's got so much bandwidth, he wants a relationship with you. Because he want, we keep saying this over and over again, and we're never going to stop saying it. He just wants us to be a part of his family again. And he, he, he subdued the chaos to create a habitable world for us to live in. And he set us in Eden in the beginning to live with us forever. And we walked out. He just wants us to be in his family again and rule with him as his sons and daughters because that's what a good father would do if he was king. Let's go back to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is like the biggest oxymoron in the entire Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have all that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside what? Still waters. Yam. So that line is not talking about a babbling brook that you get to drink clear water out of. I mean, it is. But Yahweh's provision is actually the verse before green pastures. Still waters, leads me beside still waters is this. He is so in control of the chaos that he is able to lead you right to its shore. And it will not overtake you. Go to the ocean. Go to the beach. Those waves are eating away at the shore. He can take you right up to the shores of chaos. And honestly, when you follow him, that's where you're going to be. That's where you're called to be. He said to Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. Where? Go. I'll show you. Just start moving. Elijah. You need to go do a showdown on Mount Carmel. On Baal's home court? Yep, on Mount Carmel. Yep. All 400 of them. Yes. Go. Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. Take care of the take care of this house. But the wife betrayed me and and now I'm in prison. No, nope. nope. Take care of the jails. Take care of the prison. You're still a dreamer. You can still interpret dreams there. Why? Well, see, eventually I'm going to need you to be the second in command of the Egyptian empire and lead those people through a famine and my people, that's Israel, through a famine. Right to the shores of chaos. We can still This is one of the reasons, not the only reason, it's one of the reasons why he's able to be called the king of glory in verses 7 through 10. And with all of this stuff in mind, 
Let's just, for the next few minutes, I just want to read several passages and let the word of the Lord wash over you. I've done a lot of preaching, and sometimes the best medicine is just the word of the Lord. Right here. So, Psalm 77, 16. I want to show you how widespread these ideas are in the Bible. Psalm 77, 16. When the waters saw you, when Yom saw you, O God, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Do you see how the waters are personified as being afraid of Yahweh? Job 38. Job 38. Dress for action like a man, right? Here we go. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? There are the pillars again. And who laid its cornerstone? Who laid the bottom stone of the pillar? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, there's the sons of God. Some of whom rebelled to cause chaos. Verse 8, here we go. Or who shut in the sea with doors? Who shut in Yom with doors? Remember verses 7 through 10? Open up ancient doors. When I, laid, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. The waves are proud in this passage. Almost like Yom was proud. Psalm 104. It just keeps getting better, you guys. It just keeps getting better. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Remember the picture? He lays the beams of his chambers on Yom, the waters. He lays the pillars on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. There you have the angels and the seraphim, the burning ones. Verse five, this is very, very key. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Remember that. Verse 6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains where the gods live. At your rebuke, they fled, though. The waters, Yom, fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Is Baal the god of thunder or is Yahweh the god of thunder? No. Yahweh's the god of thunder. When he speaks, the waters flee. Chaos flees. And then, one more, one more. Proverbs 8. This is Solomon writing, but he's not writing as Solomon. He's using somebody else's voice. See if you can catch who is speaking here. Verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old, ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, 
I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he laid the earth flat on the deep, I was there. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea, when he assigned to Yom its limit, so that the waters, so that Yom might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. That's you and me. Who is speaking? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. You know, before the message, we sang a song called Rain Above It All. Can we put the bridge lyrics up there? Now, I don't know if you were paying attention at all. That went off. Okay? And it should. Because that's good news. That's a really good theological concept to be discussing, to be singing about, to be shouting about. You sent the darkness running out of an empty grave, now seated alone in glory, and thrown on the highest praise. Now, the writers of this song, and when I sang it the first million times, what comes to your mind? Jesus, the resurrection, right? In, in the Gospels. Okay, keep those lyrics up there for just a second because I got to read, read another passage that comes a little bit earlier in the Bible and see if there's any connection at all. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness. Was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Yam. And then verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The first time this happened was not at the resurrection. It was in Genesis 1. Creation of the world was actually the first, quote-unquote, resurrection. You sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Let there be light. So it's time to respond. What do we, what do, we do with Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. Well, actually, there's a really strong connection between Psalm 24 and another psalm, Psalm 15. In fact, scholars believe that both of these psalms were used together as part of the temple entry process. There's very, it's very short, very similar to verses 3 through 6 in Psalm 24. Listen to this. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and slander with his tongue and does not take reproach against his friend. You see all these things. Who does not put out his money at interest in verse 5 and does not take a bribe against an innocent. The last, the last little bit there. 
He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall have a firm foundation. What did I say? What did we say in Psalm 104? He set the foundations of the world so that it should never be moved. The same language. So, in doing these things, in having the clean hands and a pure heart, in not swearing to what is false, in dealing honestly with our neighbors, in doing these things, we're not just doing good things because God said, do these things. Don't do bad things. We're doing these things so that, sh- that will never be moved, just like the foundations of the world were set so that they should never be moved. In other words, when we do these things, we're subduing chaos. We partner with Yahweh in subduing chaos and establishing his kingdom here on earth and making this place a little bit more like Eden than it was before, which is what we were commanded to do in Genesis 1.28. Do you remember what it says? He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and what? Subdue it. the earth and subdue it. This little garden that you have is chaos subdued. But there's this huge world that I've created for you and your children and your children's children and your children's children that isn't yet subdued. So have a bunch of children and have a bunch of grandchildren and have a bunch of great grandchildren and teach them about who I am so that they can go out from here and expand the borders of the garden so that more chaos can be subdued. That's, that's, that's the better version than the flannel graph you got when you were a kid, right? I'm not slamming that, but there's, that's, that's, that's why there's so much depth here, guys. We got, we got to spend, this is why we got to spend some time really chewing on this. Fill the earth and subdue it. And so it's time to respond. Can you stand on your feet? Can you close your eyes? What do we do? What do we do with these two verses? Well, some of you need to respond to chapter 24, verse 1. Remember, Yahweh is the most high and doesn't owe you anything. Okay? So here are some questions you might want to ask. In what ways are you telling God what to do? In what ways are you advising God and drawing diagrams for God? As if he needs to listen to you. What, what have you chosen, how about this? What have you chosen to blow out of proportion in your life? And you're acting as if he can't handle that? Do you find yourself asking, why is this happening to me? As opposed to, God, God what am I supposed to be learning? God, I, I'm having trouble seeing the good here, but God, can you, can you start to reveal to me how this is for my good? I'm not, I'm not saying, listen, 
Ask him why it's happening. You're not a bad son or daughter for asking that question. It's not a sin, okay? I'm not trying to, no one's judging you. God's certainly not judging you. But we need to quickly move from that line of thinking, why is this happening to me? And start asking a better question, which is, God, how is this for my good? What am I supposed to be learning? He'll answer you. Usually with a question. Right? That's what he did with Job. Some of you need to respond to chapter 24, verse 2. Some of you might need to respond to both. It's okay. But here's 24, verse 2. Remember, Yahweh is different. He's, he's subdued chaos on our behalf for his glory. And so, you might, this is a very common topic in church, especially in America. What's my calling? What's my purpose? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I don't know what my gifting is. And you've, and you've been wrestling with that for years. And every time that language is mentioned, you get this tightness in your chest and you're like, I don't know. You look around you and you see pastors and worship leaders and people like that that just, that just seem to be so all together and so capable of serving this amazing purpose for God's kingdom. And it's so obvious that that's what they're doing. It's so obvious because they're doing these very visible churchy things. And then you have this, this, then the enemy just comes and crushes you with guilt and says, you don't know what your calling is. You don't know what your gifting is. You just, so you sit in the back because you're just being crushed by a guilt that you're not supposed to be carrying. And maybe you've even been in situations where you were made to feel guilty by the words that were said to you, to your face in a conversation or preached from stage. And please, please hear my heart when I'm saying this. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here about this. I'm trying to help you. The Lord's trying to help you. So if that's you, if, you, if you're like, what is my calling? What is my gifting? I don't know. I've been searching for years for a purpose. I don't know the answer to that but here's where you should definitely start is ask yourself this question. Is there some chaos around me that I can subdue? It might be this much chaos. It might be a teaspoon of chaos. Find some chaos and subdue it. Start there. Literally every single person that is breathing, that is your job. Fill the earth and subdue it. And it looks very different for everybody. But if you're not sure, find some chaos and subdue it. And if you enjoy subduing that kind of chaos, maybe try it again. Bigger this time. Maybe a cup or a gallon. If you don't like it, okay, find some other chaos. Subdue that. If you like doing that, okay. And, and you'll, start to, you'll start to figure it out. But find some chaos somewhere, however small, and subdue it. Because as you begin to subdue chaos around you, let me guarantee you one thing, the voice of the Lord becomes much louder. And it will become easier to hear what he's telling you to do next. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
Oh, we're so thankful that you reign above it all. That you sent darkness running out of an empty grave 2,000 years ago so that we would have the opportunity to spend eternity as members of your family. We're also thankful that you actually, you and your son Jesus set that example way back in the beginning of history. When time itself began, when you subdued chaos and you created a world for us to live in. And then you said, okay, sons and daughters, okay, my children, I've shown you what the father's business is. Now, go and do the same. I'll be with you every step of the way, but I want you to go and subdue chaos too. I'm still the most high. Remember, I don't owe you anything. You owe me everything, but also you are my son. You are my daughter. I want you to be close to me. I want you to lay down in green pastures. I want to be able to, I want you to follow me so closely that I can lead you right to the shores of chaos. but have you be totally and completely protected, totally and completely in control, totally and completely loved. God, do what only you can do. There are people in this room that are desperate to hear your voice and you're speaking to them. Would you open up their ears? so that they might know what questions to begin asking themselves and asking of you. Transform their hearts, renew their minds so that they start, if they're, if they're struggling, God, with feeling like you owe them something, God, would you renew their minds, shift their perspective and have them start asking you questions like, hey, God, how, what am I supposed to be learning here? This is killing me. What am I supposed to be learning? God, would you begin to reveal sources of chaos around us and give us the boldness to step toward that source of chaos and say, it's time that you be subdued as well. And I can't do this. I've got nothing to bring to the table except the King of glory. I've got nothing to do. I can't do anything about this chaos except my Father is the King of glory. And he's going to be the one that gets me through this. He's going to be the one that gives me the power to overcome this in my life or in the lives of people around me. That's who the King of Glory is. God, we're so thankful for you. So thankful for what you're doing in this room. In Jesus' name.